seated, and if you'll open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. Last week we covered the first section, the first part of Ephesians chapter 2, where we were reminded about God's power working for us to raise us up while we were doubly dead and triply deceived. We have been infinitely delivered in Christ. And the idea of Paul's reminder there in the first few verses of Ephesians chapter 2 is to help us to see that indeed God has already through his power done the hardest bit. He has resurrected us from death and brought us into newness of life and raised us and seated us at the right hand of the Father along with Jesus. From the from that piece Luke or Paul pivots into verse 11 where he says therefore remember Ephesians chapter 2, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the circumcision by what is called the, uh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And really from this point all the way through to chapter 3, Paul begins to discuss what he describes in chapter 3 as the mystery of God finally revealed, and that is the inclusion of the Gentiles into the redemptive purposes of God. And I have heard that discussed my whole life, and I, t- I, I struggle sometimes to get as excited about that news as Paul seems to be. And uh, I've preached this stuff my whole life, and I struggled to get others excited about, it's like, what's the big deal? Okay, Uh, God's redemptive purposes have been opened up to the Gentiles. Why is that significant? Well, Gentiles literally just, in the Greek, you're just seeing a word that also means nations. Like, it's, this, this idea is not that God has, the cool thing is not that God has opened up the gospel to another group of people. The cool thing is, is that by, sh- by saying not only Jews, but all the nations, God is declaring that he has a purpose for the whole world, for all things. This is God moving from what, what appears to be in the Old Testament local to global. And of course, there are many Old Testament promises that, that, that pointed in that direction, that all the ends of the earth will call him blessed and so on and so forth. So the thing to get excited about when you read about the Gentiles being brought in is that this is the announcement that God's going to take everything. It's all, it's all his. It's all for him. We're really just adding on to what we discussed last week where we said we want to be a church which proves the power and wisdom of God because really in Ephesians 2, 11 through 22 and then on into chapter 3, that's what Paul's talking about. He's talking about evidence of the power of God the evidence of the power of God in bringing in a group of people and uniting them with another group of people who were once hostile to one another. And we want to add one more statement, kind of subordinate to the one we had last week, and that is, we will change the world when we stop acting like it. And and the idea of changing the world, we're going to discover, is thoroughly biblical. We are called to change the world. And we're also told real clearly like how that will and will not happen. So we're adding another idea here. We will change the world when we stop acting like it. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. I've already read verses 11 and 12. 
Let's pick up in verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one Father, one Spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This discussion in this passage about the body of Christ had me thinking about the body of Paul. I, I, I began to think about what, would, what the body of Paul would look like after he died. We know that he was in prison when he wrote this. He remained in prison for quite some time. He eventually died in Rome. And then, of course, those that were closest to him would have taken his body and, and cleaned it and prepared it, much like we see done to Jesus after his crucifixion. And I just imagined sort of a, a post-mortem examination of Paul's body. And, and I think what the idea that I was thinking through was you'd probably see on this body severe evidence of, uh, evidence of severe malnutrition. You know, he had, he had been on, he'd been in prison multiple times. You don't eat so well in prison. And maybe you'd see evidence of vitamin, you know, extreme deficiencies in vitamin D because he had been in prison for so long, and his teeth were probably a wreck, and so on. But I was really thinking about how, as you're washing this, this, this body of this apostle, you would see scars kind of all over the place, broken bones that had not reset properly, and so on and so forth. And, and I was thinking about Luke, the physician. You know, was he there? Was he performing? Was he doing this? And so on. Because Luke would, Luke would be especially interested in this sort of thing. And then... I began to think about how you could go through all of the scars that you'd see on his legs and his arms and his, his chest and his stomach and his back, and you could say that one was from this city, and that, that scar over there was from that city, and you could trace back all of these wounds that hadn't probably you know, healed especially well on this man's body back to individual instances in which he brought the gospel into a new city. And you could even go further than that, and you could say what's kind of weird about Paul's body is that, um, is that some of the wounds came from Gentiles and some of the wounds came from Jews. You know, you could say, well, this one was a Jewish stoning, and well, that one was a Gentile riot, and so on and so forth. And you've got this idea of a dead man laid out, and you're seeing evidence not only of his attempt to bring the gospel to the world, but also evidence of the world's response to the gospel apart from the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. So why, why are all these scars and, and unset bones on his body? Well, because Paul spent 
his entire ministry doing combat with the prevailing cultures of the time. And by combat, I mean Paul was seeking to rule and subdue these cultures for the sake of Christ. He was seeking to make all things a footstool for Jesus. And it turns out that cultures don't go quietly in the night when when the new upstart comes in and says, y'all are wrong, here's the right way, they throw rocks. So why is Paul spending his whole life, all of his energy, his physical health, indeed his entire life, on bringing the gospel to cities and disrupting these perfectly uh, sustainable or somewhat or seemingly sustainable cultures? Because that's what he's doing. We see in Ephesians chapter 3, Verse 8, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So He knew why he was doing what he was doing. So let me go back to this phrase, we will change the world when we stop being so much like it. Are we supposed to change the world? Should that be our aspiration? Well, Jesus taught us to pray. This should be rather self-evident. Jesus taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the answer to this should be relatively simple. Yes, we are called to see this world brought into practical subjection to Jesus Christ. But of course, Paul believed this, and he talks about it in Ephesians. In Ephesians 1, 7 through 10, he tells us that actually our salvation is just, a, is just an appetizer of a great feast God has planned to reconcile all things to himself. Verse 7 of Ephesians 1, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. God's plan is to unite all things in Christ. There's another Scripture that says he is reconciling all things unto Jesus Christ. Um, we see in Ephesians this reference to Jesus being seated at the right hand of the Father. And incidentally, later in chapter 2, we're told that the church has been seated with Jesus as well. What does it mean that Jesus has been seated at the right hand of the Father? You know, I have this little fitness tracking thing that, that lowers my self-esteem every, every day. And... Uh, uh, you know, it, it penalizes you for sitting, right? Um, I, I can be rather active. I can even go to the gym, and I'm like racking up all these points, and then it does this thing at the end. It's like, yeah, but you sat for six hours, you fat slob, and then it removes half my points, half my hard-earned points. Like, I can't help it that, that I'm an intellectual. I have to sit for a little. No. Uh, no. Uh, when we hear seated, we think passivity, and I think in one degree, Hebrews would tell us, yes, Jesus is seated, resting from the creational work that has taken place through his life, death, and resurrection. But really, 
when the word seated is referred to with Christ, it's always a reference in one way or another back to, I think, what is the most quoted psalm in all the New Testament. Pretty sure about that. And that's Psalm 110. And sometimes Psalm 110.1 is referenced explicitly in the New Testament. Sometimes it's kind of only partially referenced like it is in Ephesians. But I think every time this idea of Jesus seated is brought up, it's always pointing us back to this verse in Psalm 110. And that's that verse, verse 1, says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies, uh, till I make your enemies your footstool. Sit at my right hand until... I make your enemies your footstool. Does it make sense, enemies, footstools? It just means I'm going to make your enemies your servants. I'm going to make your enemies subjected to you. So, you know, we have a grand cat now, and the grand cat, the grand kitten's name is Odin. And the joke is, like, we're going to name all of our pets from now on after false gods so that they can be, you know, the, the footstool of the real God, Jesus Christ. Um, so, so... Footstool is servant. Footstool is subordinated. Footstool is under. So this psalm, this verse in psalm, in this psalm, is quoted in Acts. It's quoted in Acts twice, I believe. Colossians, 1 Corinthians, five times in Hebrews, here in Ephesians, and is basically the whole theme of the book of Revelation. What does it mean that Jesus is seated? It means it's this reference to him waiting until God through the power of the Spirit, work in the church, brings all things practically under subjection to him. You know, Hebrews 2 says it this way, he put everything under his feet, and then, he, and then Hebrews 2 says, though at this time we do not see everything under his feet. So there's this, this idea within, I'm getting off script a little bit, but uh, there's this idea within Christianity where things are put forward in a kind of already not yet sense. Or another way of talking about it is positional realities and practical realities. So when a Christian first believes, he is positionally right before God, justified and sinless. He is holy and blameless before God because he's in Christ. That's positional, true. Practically, not so much. Less, less than perfect, right? Uh, so the job of the Christian is to make what's true in heaven in their, about them, true on earth about them. The, the job is, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Right? That's the positional overtaking the practical. The positional informing the practical. Well, in the same way, the Bible teaches that God's program or plan for the church is to positionally seat us with Christ as he rules over all things, and as he brings all things under subjection, under subjection to him. But practically, of course, this is a matter of work, just as it is with the believer's salvation. Now, uh, we, don't, we would never accept a believer, we would never say to a believer who claims to be saved but who has never made any progress, it's okay, you're good. Likewise, we would expect to see progress in the church, progressively ruling and subduing, going into all the world and making disciples and bringing more and more enemies of Christ under subjection to Christ. Now, we measure a believer's progress in this area by a lifespan. So you've got you know, 60 or 70 years, depending on how, you are, how old we are when you get saved, to like make progress, right? Well, how do we measure the church's 
progress. We measure it over centuries. Right? So, so we would look at the church over the course of centuries and ask, is this thing becoming so? So 1 Corinthians 15 talks, uses this rule, uh, that Christ, Christ seated at the hand of the Father until his enemies are under his feet. And I want to show you this verse. And again, just as a reminder, this is all under the question of, are we supposed to change the world? Or are we supposed to sit in a foxhole with our hands over our heads, waiting for it to all go to pot, uh, and then getting like a rapture ejection button at some point, bailing out of this fireball of the world. Well, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, says, it, Paul's, this is the great text of the resurrection, the final resurrection and the resurrection of Jesus. Verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 15, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man death came, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in their own order. Christ the firstfruits, then his coming, then at his coming those who believe who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. When does he deliver the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power? And verse 25 says, For he must reign, seated, seated at the right hand of the Father, until he has put all of his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy is to be destroyed is death. For, verse 27, God has put all things in subjection under his feet. So the idea here is, is that Jesus will physically return when his enemies have all been practically put under his feet, I think except one, that being death, and Jesus returns with the resurrection to destroy the final enemy, that being death. So verse 24, just to not to beat a dead horse, uh, or not to beat a post-millennial horse, but uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 24, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority, and power after destroying. He comes after these things have been destroyed. At least that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. One of the most tangible ways to think about what it means to change the world is to just stick with what Paul says about Jesus and the church in Ephesians chapter 5, where he says that the church is, in a mysterious way, the bride of Christ. Now, what we learn from 1 Corinthians 15 and what we learn from, from Romans is that in many respects, God has caused Jesus to be the new and perfect Adam, right? So that Romans aligns all humanity under two families. And we see family, the, the idea of family referenced in our text in Ephesians 2. God has aligned all families under two heads. You have Adam and Eve. And in that family, all are dead in their sins and trespasses. And then he has created a second family, a new Adam, with a new bride that Jesus has purchased with his own death, and that is the church. So Jesus and the church are Adam and Eve in some respect. And now these two, the church and Christ, walk together into the world, fulfilling the original command of God to rule and subdue, by being fruitful and multiplying. That's the idea of, I think, what Paul is thinking about 
as he is going out and bearing another beating, facing another contentious argument. I don't think it's proper to say that I think that, that his view of what God was doing in the world as it related to the Gentiles was God wants to take it all. He wants to reconcile it all unto himself. So now I'm kind of just asking, well, how did Paul do this? How did Paul plan on reconciling the whole world to Christ? How did Paul actively go about ruling and subduing? Well, you could look at that passage in Genesis and see Adam and Eve and understand that in many respects that the, the call to rule and subdue is contingent or fulfilled upon, rather, the, 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 the idea of being fruitful and multiplying. And so when you have the Great Commission where Jesus tells the disciples to go into all the world and make disciples, uh, teaching, them what I believe, teaching them what I've said, you get, this rule, you get this fruitful and multiply idea here. Go make disciples. Go be fruitful and multiply. So what is Paul's program for changing the world? His program is to produce spiritual offspring for God through the preaching of the gospel. He's, his plan is to be fruitful and multiply uh, with the gospel. So specifically, that means that Paul preached Christ crucified. And I think it's very important that we understand why that specificity is included in the scriptures over and over again, and why it matters. So, effectively, Ephesians 2.17 says that Jesus was preaching through Paul to those who were near and to those who were far off. Ephesians 2.17 says, Christ came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Now, we know that it was actually Paul preaching, but it was Christ preaching through Paul. And, and the thing about it is, is that this gets back to all of the scars on Paul's body. Preaching the gospel of peace brings war. Jesus actually tells us this. He says, do not think that I have to bring peace, but rather a sword. The idea is that when you preach the gospel of peace, you're pronouncing condemnation on those who do not believe in Jesus. And people, it turns out, don't like to be condemned. So, for instance, we can go back to Acts chapter 19 and 20, where Paul actually enters the city of Ephesus the first time. And the first three months, he's there. He spends that three months speaking in the Jewish synagogue. And it says that he was speaking boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But then it says, when some people became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of, way of, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with them, with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. So he's in the synagogue speaking to the Jews about the kingdom of God for three months, and he's having some effect there. Some people are being made into Christians. Some people are being made into the disciples of Jesus. But eventually, the, 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 the sort of well runs dry, and the people who are hearing this but not believing eventually have enough, and they begin to speak evil of Paul and evil of the way. So Paul withdraws from them, and he goes across the street from the synagogue into a Gentile meeting place, and he grabs all of his Jewish converts to Christianity with him, and they go and they teach in this place, and they talk about Jesus in this place. And that went really well and for a while. Uh, many Gentiles repented. There's a piece in, in Acts 19 where it says that, that they burned their books of magic 
And back then you had these little satchels that contained secret words and you would pay a lot of money for them. And a lot of times they didn't make any actual sense, but they were these little, uh, these little things that you would wear around your neck as a, as a, as a, a key to power. So this was like power, power words. And you would pay a lot of money for these things. And so when people became Christians who were part of this kind of pagan ritual, this pagan approach, they all brought all this stuff and they burned it. And the text says that, that when they estimated the value of all that had been burned, it equaled something like 50,000 pieces of silver. And you think, well, how much is that worth now? Well, it depends on what the piece of silver was, right? It depends on how big the piece of silver was. I read estimates that it was somewhere between $5 million and $1 billion. So yes, Ephesus is a big city, but now they're seeing their economy turned upside down. Why? Because of governmental intrusion? No. Because of barbarians invading? No. Because of this message about Jesus Christ being God coming to the earth. So yeah, the gospel changes like life, actual life, like economies and governments and so on and so forth. And the Ephesians are fully aware of this because they decide enough's enough. They don't want to lose their they don't want to lose their jobs, they don't want to lose their way of life and so forth. So a whole riot ensues and that's sort of the story of Paul preaching in Ephesians in Ephesus. So Jesus when he is preached, when Paul preaches the crucified Christ, even though it is fundamentally a message of peace, it produces strife, it produces antagonism and enmity amongst those who would not believe. So I want to talk about this idea of Jesus, the crucified body of Jesus, being a sermon of sorts to the world. And the first point is this. The crucified body of Christ preaches a message of condemnation to the nations. The crucified body of Christ preaches a message of condemnation to the nations. You look at all the scars and abuse evident on Paul's body, and you conclude that some of those scars came from the Jews, and some of those scars came from the Gentiles. Why? Well, as we've said, because his gospel was a serious threat to their way of life. And here's the interesting thing. Damaging the body of Paul was about the only thing the Jews and Gentiles could agree upon. Here's, here's this very interesting thing about the body of Paul, and then let's extrapolate it further and talk about the body of Christ. Let's lay these two dead bodies down and look at all the wounds. And here's, here's what's interesting about this. What you see is, is that two cultures who could never agree on anything, who could never cooperate on anything, cooperated in this. So these cultures had a meeting where they agreed to agree. They agreed to work together. And those wounds on the body of Paul and the body of Christ, that's the minutes of the meeting. That's, that's the consequence of collaboration apart from Christ. That's the consequence of reconciliation, of ethnic reconciliation apart from Christ. That's, that's the consequence of when they finally worked together, what did they produce? They produced injustice. They produced violence. They produced evil. So that's the idea that the body of Christ, Christ crucified, preaches a message of condemnation before the nations. And that is simply, hey, when you guys do cooperate, look what happens. Imagine a group of brothers and sisters who do not get along. Like, really, really bad. This is the worst sibling situation you've ever seen. They just rip the heart out of any parent. They, they are always fighting. They're little kids, but they are just always at each other's throats. And one of them finds a teddy bear 
buried deep in a toy box. And nobody can remember whose it is, but everybody wants to own it, so they fight over it. And one grabs a leg, and the other grabs another leg, and another an arm, and another a head. And at the end of the fight, the teddy bear is laying utterly dismembered on the ground. And that dismembered teddy bear is preaching a message about the evil of these children. But that illustration doesn't quite work, does it? Because no one wanted Christ. They were not fighting for him. They were cooperating in their fight against him. So let me modify the story a little bit. So instead of these kids who never get along, who are always angry and hostile with each other, instead of them fighting for possession of the teddy bear, they find for the first time in their lives a mutual hatred, mutual agreement for one thing, this teddy bear. They all decide this is a stupid toy that doesn't deserve to exist and they kind of stoke each other up, and they agree. They, they, these kids can't agree on anything. They can't agree on what snack they should have. They are fighting constantly. The one time they agree is, this teddy bear deserves to be destroyed. And so they work together. They're like, Dad has some, some firecrackers in the garage. And, and normally that would be a fight. And normally someone would sell out somebody. But no, they work together, and they go get the firecrackers. I think there's a pretty good butcher knife in the kitchen. It's like, don't tell on me, but I'm going to go get the butcher knife. It's okay, I won't tell on you. And they systematically, these evil kids systematically plot together to shred this teddy bear. And so here it is, this teddy bear's lying in tatters all over the floor. And the father walks in and he says, you are such wicked children. And the only time you've ever agreed on anything, look what it's produced. And by the way, that teddy bear was mine. It was my prized possession from when I was a child. And when I had you guys, I put it, I put it in your room so that you could enjoy it. And look, look, look what your cooperation has done. Look what you, and, and why is it important to talk about this? Oh, it's very, <laughs> it's crucial to talk about this. Because we need to be very clear about something. Human reconciliation and cooperation is not the game, not the aim of the church. Ethnic reconciliation is not the aim of the church. Human reconciliation is not the aim of the church. Human cooperation is not the aim of the church. All those things are the aim of the church unto Christ. And all of those things on their own, apart from Christ, only produce more evil, more injustice. Just go read the story of the Tower of Babel. So the preaching Christ crucified has a way of condemning the nations and saying, look, look what you do. Look what you do. First of all, you never agree. And here's what happens when you do agree. But the body of Christ is also, through the lavish mercy of Jesus, the body of Christ not only preaches a message of condemnation to the nations, it preaches a message of reconciliation to the nations. Imagine, keep, keep playing along with my slightly heretical teddy bear illustration, please. So imagine the teddy bear has a magical power to heal all of this poison and bitterness in the hearts of the children. But the only way that magical power to heal all the venom 
is released is when the bear is torn to shreds. And so the kids are standing there together, never left either, always hated each other. And they're looking at this, this, this pile of fluff on the floor. And suddenly, in a kind of Dr. Seuss way, their heart transforms from within. And they love each other. They don't want to tolerate each other. They love each other. They actually, they actually want what's best for one another. Now, look at Ephesians 2.14. And this is exactly what Paul's talking about in Ephesians 2. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and broken down in our flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the land of... Uh, broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So, Paul presenting Jesus Christ crucified is the way to change the world. It condemns the world over that which they should be condemned, but it also offers them true reconciliation through the death that they themselves are responsible for, just as is every other person they hate and dislike. And somehow there's just some that God does through the gospel where he gathers all these people who would normally not even like each other around the thing they all hated. This is, this, is, this is one of the foundations of our relationship with one another that doesn't get talked about enough. We talk about what we love, right? We are, we are oriented together by what we love. In some respects, what Paul is doing in Ephesians 2 is saying, you're also oriented around what you used to hate. You used to hate God, and now you don't. And that's a basis of your relationship as well. So Paul preaches Christ crucified as a message of condemnation and reconciliation. But he also does another thing, and that is he presents the church to the world. He presents the church to the world. When he preaches Christ, local churches are formed, and those local churches then stand as a living embodiment of the body of Christ. And the living embodiment of the body of Christ is both the crucified body of Christ and the resurrected body of Christ. It's, it's both. We are a church that suffers because the culture is threatened by the gospel of Jesus Christ. But we're also a church that is reconciled together as one in a way that can only be explained by the power of God. That's what I really mean when I say we will change the world when we, start at, when we stop acting like it. What does it mean to be worldly? Guys, in some respects, that, that, that the definition of worldly depends on what denomination and generation you grew up in. Like, I've, I, at some point, wearing pants if you're a woman was worldly. Um, playing cards was worldly. Going to movies was worldly. Like, what, is, what, what, do we, what do we mean by being worldly? Well, fundamentally, in the context of this passage, and I think this is the, the, under, the, the underlying true definition of worldliness is rivalry, <laughs> conceit. Selfish ambition, um, pride, so on. If we can just be the thing that Jesus made us to be through his death, 
by dividing the wall of hostility with his flesh. We can just be that. We'll be, a, we'll be a, a, a picture of the body of Christ presented to the world. So the church is this collection of children who all agree that the one time we were all on the same page was when we hated God. And seeing our responsibility for that, we are healed from our strife with God and with one another. And therefore, the worldliness that we're really renouncing, the thing we're trying not to be like, is we're trying not to be like those people who live for selfish ambition, who, who live for self, who, who, who take up bitterness as a joyful task, as a joyful occupation. And that's really where we see Paul's transition in chapter 4, which we'll pick up next week. Chapter 4, as I mentioned earlier, Paul says, let's get the positional worked out into the practical. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And what does that look like? What's the first thing Paul addresses? With all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. So the real thing for us is to say, let's be a church that, that embodies this, this miraculous unity which God has made possible through the cross. And I just want to leave you with this statement. It's, it's, by, it's far from profound, but man, it's so important that you actually believe this as a member of a local church, and that is this. Church is not a place where sin is absent. I want it to be a church where sin is less present. God wants it to be a, sin, a, a place where sin is less present. But the church is not a place where sin will ever be entirely absent. The church is a place where sin is forgiven. The church is the place where sin is forgiven. The church is the place where humility and gentleness and patience and bearing and an eagerness to maintain the his blood the church is a place where we commit to that over and over again, even brothers and sisters sinning against us. Let me pray for us. God, I pray that you would give us a heart to change the world, to see all things brought into subjection to Jesus. Help us to know that that is, that is why we are called. That is, that is why we are made alive in him. We are part of a plan to reconcile all things unto Christ. And it is reconciliation unto Christ which matters most. Human reconciliation only happens in a way that doesn't lead to evil and injustice. Human reconciliation only happens when you reconcile us to yourself. And then we find ourselves together in this new place, this new place called Christ. And there we find ourselves reconciled also to one another. Lord, I do believe that you would say to us this morning that through your grace, your grace alone, your power alone, you have made us your workmanship and, and given us work to do which you have prepared in advance. And that, that work, I Lord, Lord, I believe, involves this act of, of changing the world, of making the world more and more in practical conformity to Christ. Let us, God, be eager to preach the gospel of Christ crucified to the world. Let's be eager to preach it to one another. Lord, let's also just, just really, as we think about church membership through this series, let's also just resolutely decide that in many respects, 
the basic commitment of church membership is to live like the gospel actually affects the way we love one another, care for one another, and forgive one another. Lord, give us the power to see that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.